And so the other thing is, you know, surgical simulation isn't like a brand new field. Like, you know, the idea of not training on patients has been around forever. What's new is, you know, being able to use a commoditized gaming technology that's so effective and amazing. So I was like, well, surgical simulators of the past decade or so have utilized grounded kinesthetic feedback for some time. Welcome to The Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender. Our topic today is the use of virtual reality in surgical teaching. My co-host in today's episode is Dr. Erica Fisk. She is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon and a Harvard Fellowship trained in foot and ankle surgery. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Barat. He's the founder and CEO of OsoVR. He is an orthopedic surgeon and he received his MD at the David Geffen School of Medicine and also did his orthopedic surgery residency at UCLA. He went on to do a pediatric orthopedic surgery fellowship at Boston Children's, and he did a bachelor in science in bioengineering and biomechanical engineering at UC Berkeley. So virtual reality has had a rapid growth in many different industries and organizations. And this is including the military, engineering, construction, education. And it's actually most commonly known by people from the gaming industry. But it's also grown in the medical and healthcare space. And we'll be focusing on that in today's episode. I wanted to go over the different types of reality platforms because we'll be throwing out some terminology. And so just so that people have a basic understanding of each of these reality platforms, I'll give a, a brief synopsis on, on each one. So a virtual reality is a fully immersive experience and the user ends up leaving the real world and they enter a fully digital environment. And this is through uh, virtual reality headsets. Our brains believe that we're moving amongst uh, the objects on the screen. And some of the examples that are out there for virtual reality are Google Cardboard, the Samsung Gear VR, and Google Daydream. They have a smartphone app that creates the VR experience. The Oculus Go and Oculus Rift, however, are standalone virtual reality headsets. Another type of reality platform that is also in existence and, and talked about frequently is augmented reality. Now, that's an experience where virtual objects are superimposed onto the real world environment. And this is through the use of smartphones, tablets, you know, augmented reality glasses. And the best example is probably Pokemon Go, you know, that whole craze. And mixed reality is the last platform that I want to mention. And it's a platform that's going beyond augmented reality. It's where virtual objects are placed in a real world environment and they can be interacted with and respond as if they were real objects. A mixed reality headset is used and they offer a holographic or immersive experience through uh, translucent glasses. And an example of this technology is the uh, Microsoft HoloLens or the uh, Samsung Odyssey. So it's that gesture, it's that gaze, it's that voice recognition technology through a pair of motion controllers or through a mixed reality headset that helps deliver a believable mixed reality experience. Welcome, Justin. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So our episode today is on the use of virtual reality in surgical teaching, and that's why we brought Justin on, so that he can help guide us through what's happening in that area of technology and just go into how he's contributing to it. So, Justin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your company? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to. So, you know, what Oso VR is, is an anytime, anywhere surgical training and assessment platform. So you use this VR headset here to immerse yourself in a virtual operating room, and you could train on literally any procedure using your hands realistically like you would in a real operating room. It also incorporates assessment, so you can get objective feedback on your performance and allows you to train as a team. So all of us being surgeons can jump into an operating room remotely, even though we're not physically in the same location. As I always say, surgery is a team sport, not an individual sport. So, you know, you should train as you practice. OsoVR is currently utilized in 20 countries around the world. 
We have simulations mainly in orthopedics right now and joint replacement, pediatrics, trauma, spine, and we're also branching out into vascular surgery, thoracic surgery, and the general robotic space as well. What was your inspiration to start the company? Well, uh, brace yourselves. It's a bit of a long story. So let's go back to middle school, you know, where we all start these things. So, you know, I've been a huge fan of video games my entire life, and I was really interested in how they were made. And so I decided pretty early in life that I wanted to make video games and be a video game developer. So, you know, I taught myself how to program and kind of was really on this computer science game development track. I even had the opportunity to work at a company called Activision, which is a huge video game publisher, and I have a game credit with them. I was just, I was really excited about this, if it's not coming across. And then, you know, my life took a bit of a left turn. I'm sure, like, <laughs> it's funny reading, like, the personal statements of people applying to come into orthopedic surgery. Usually there's a story of an athletic injury or something like that. I didn't necessarily have that exact story, but it was a personal experience with medicine that got me interested. And what happened for me, a family member just got very ill and was hospitalized for the majority of my senior year. And I wondered to myself, I thought, I love software and technology so much. Is there a way to use it not necessarily to entertain people, but actually help people, especially ones with medical problems? So I discovered this new major that I had known about called bioengineering or biomedical engineering, where you can use engineering principles to solve healthcare problems. I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. So I pivoted from computer science to bioengineering at Cal, which is great. And my goal in my mind was I'm going to get this degree and then I'm going to be this inventor and invent all these different technologies that's going to help people and solve all sorts of problems. Hooray, everyone's awesome. And so as I neared graduation, I was waiting for the moment where someone would be like, hey, here's how you do all those things. And that wasn't really anywhere clear to me. So I started kind of panicking near senior year of college, as I think most people do. And so also doing something that most people do is getting breakfast with my mom's gastroenterologist. I'm sure we've all had this moment. And I was chatting with him, you know, he's asked me what I want to do. I told him and he said, you know, if you want to invent something, you need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he felt that the best way to solve or understand medical problems was to be a physician. So, you know, I took his advice super literally and he helped me get into medical school at UCLA and I loved it. Go Bruins and go Bears. I love them all. And then, you know, I stayed to do orthopedics because, you know, for me, it was really a great fit because I could apply engineering principles to help people. So it really appealed to me. And also, like, I'm sure everybody in this room, for people that don't know what orthopedic surgery is, it feels like magic. And, you know, you take someone who can't walk and, you know, they're, they're up and walking again. And I ended up going into pediatric orthopedics for a couple of reasons. One is I kind of had a feeling that adult medicine had become very, I I love it, but a bit coin operated, that there was a little too much money and business involved. And I was really attracted to the mission driven nature of helping children. I really like the idea of everybody just in it to help the kids. They really don't care how much money they make, much to their detriment and and anything else or, you know, how many hours they're awake. It's all about helping kids. And I, I found that to be really attractive and exciting. And I mean, the moment that really hammered at home, I was I was walking, you know, into a clinic and, and there was this kid who had flown from another country who was born with untreated club feet. You guys know what this is. And like could six, like 14 or 16, we did, you know, a triple arthrodesis, this salvage procedure. But as I was walking into clinic, I, I could I just see him out of the corner of my eyes grabbing and he's going, dad, dad, that's the doctor who made it so I could walk again. So like uh, I just like, you know, went into the bat. <laughs> yeah. Went in the bathroom, cried, and, you know, you can't show weakness, so nobody saw that. But, like, you know, I, I decided I was going to do peds ortho because, I mean, there's nothing really more rewarding than that. And so, you know, all of this is happening, and I'm, you know, trying to learn how to do surgery. I'm, I'm, I'm watching surgery. I'm in surgery every day. And I think, you know, every surgeon's worst fear, at least when they're in training, is that they're going to graduate, like, undertrained or not able to do a great job. And I w- was a little, I guess uncomfortable with the way that we were learning to do surgery, which is mainly just sort of watching it. But it really felt quite random to me on one hand, where you're sort of a victim of chance, where, for example, one of my co-residents on his hand rotation, which you, Dr. Rosie, can relate to, had zero distal radius fractures for two months. Just, I mean, just, you know, total random fluke. But that's something that you really need to know how to do in any practice, you know, and so we're, we're getting to the point where there's so many different procedures and ways to do them that you're, you're not able to get exposed to it all was one thing that I noticed. 
Another issue was the increasing complexity of the procedures that we're doing. So, you know, during certain procedures where we'd be trying to use a new technology or maybe a device that we don't use very often, instead of helping with the procedure itself, people would be like, hey, Justin, go scrub out and like help the rep Google the technique guide or a YouTube video or a Vumedi video. And like, I'm sure people have this experience. It's, you know, most surgeries are safe, you know, and like surgeons are amazing, but it happened enough times that I was kind of raising an eyebrow. And I think for me, the thing that really hit home is that there's just no objective assessment at all, really, of our surgical skills, which is, I think for me, when I was a resident, it was like very stressful to not know where I was and to really only go by kind of how much people liked you. That was really like how the rating or like giving you the ability to do surgery. There was one time in, in my career up to this point that I had been assessed. I was interviewing for residency and this guy pulls out the board game operation, puts it on the table and asks me to remove the funny bone without buzzing. And like, I kind of like laughed and like he wasn't laughing. So I'm like, oh, are, are you serious? Like, I, I still don't know if that was like a serious activity or not. And I mean, I did it. And I was super proud. And I heard some people like, you know, turned it upside down and shook the pieces out or like, you know, the stories like that. I thought this was a rumor because I'd heard about this when I was doing my like residency interviews. So it actually does. Yeah, no, I mean, I have some crazy (laughs) interview source for you guys. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, I mean, like in retrospect, I'm happy he did that. Right. Like, I mean, I just got hired. You know, I still take Pete's trauma call on the weekends and, you know, nobody, nobody had any idea if it was safe for me to operate or not. They're just, you know, looking at where I trained and making an assumption of, well, he's probably safe. And, you know, if you listen to the podcast, Dr. Death, which, you know, I would like to point out to anybody listening to this, that that guy was a neurosurgeon, not an orthopedic surgeon, but you could definitely, I think everybody who, every doctor I know who listens to that podcast or that story says to themselves, or they say to me, I know some, I know somebody like that, you know, and, and they just got through and it's, it's not, it's not their fault and it's not, you know, saying anything on them, but it's just, you need to know if it's safe or not to fly a plane, right? Yet we don't have this for, for doing surgery. The one thing I always point out to people is, you know, when you get on a plane, you're not furiously Googling your pilot to make sure that he's safe or, you know, calling your grandma to see how her experience was with that specific pilot, right? Like the things we do when we're getting surgery are crazy. And you don't do these things when you get on a plane because you know most likely you're going to get the same result every single time. But the reason why you're furiously Googling and calling people is you know that there's a lot of variability. And so you're worried and, you know, not for, it's for good reason. And so this was, these were things that I was feeling and I was kind of curious, like, what does the data show? And so when I looked into it, I was actually like really taken aback. And I think most people in our field are like, they have a general sense that some of these things are going on, but I don't think they have a sense of the actual numbers, which is super alarming. So you know, one of the landmark studies in the field of kind of surgical assessment, surgical skill is in the New England Journal of Medicine from 2013 from Berkmeyer et al. And this was a study in bariatric surgery. So, you know, very different from what we do, but I think you can kind of extrapolate out and, and make some common sense assumptions based off of it. And what it found is that when you look at videos of low skilled surgeons and higher skilled surgeons, and then look how those patients did, what they found was for the higher skilled surgeon, every single patient did better in terms of their hospital length of stay, readmissions, complications, and their morbidity and mortality. And one of the the takeaways from that study that was very alarming is that the mortality rate was five times higher for the lower skilled surgeons than the higher skilled surgeons. So, you know, if there was some sort of factor that would increase your likelihood of dying from surgery by five, you would probably want to know about that so that you can do something about it, right? It's not like you're just going to fire these surgeons like, hey, maybe you should get better at this one procedure. It's not a reflection of you as a person. So that was a really big landmark study where people are like, hey, maybe we should start looking more at the skill of the people doing the procedures rather than looking back on how people did after the procedures, because it's really too late to do something about it at that point. Another big study was something from Brian George in the University of Michigan in 2017 in the Annals of Surgery. And this answered a pretty basic question is, how good are we doing 
at training surgeons. So it's a very long road to become a surgeon, as you guys all too well know. You know, it's four years of college, you know, maybe did a research year, but another four years of med school, and then maybe take a gap year again. And then it's, God knows, five to seven years of residency and then some form of fellowship pretty much across the board, like so many fellowships now, right? And so in this study, they just, they looked at, they looked at a bunch of things. One of the things they looked at is, how autonomously can graduating residents operate? How much supervision do they need after 14 years of education? And what they found was that 31% of graduating residents still couldn't operate on their own. And you guys know, I mean, we all know that's true, right? That's part of why we're doing fellowships is we need additional training. So, you know, the problem is, is, is very simple at its core. It's too much to learn. We're the victims of our own success. There's too many procedures, too many technologies, too many devices to be able to learn with traditional educational paradigms. The second is that the procedures themselves are exponentially more complicated than they used to be. Learning curves for a traditional arthroplasty, maybe 10 to 20 cases for anterior total hip, 50 to 100 cases, right? Robotic arthroplasty, navigation, patient-specific implants. These things really expand and lengthen the learning curve. And the final component is the lack of assessment. So I'm experiencing all of these things and I'm still very much involved in the world of gaming. And so, you know, the second I tried VR, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to solve this problem. You can practice any procedure. You can practice it as many times as you need to. You can actually practice on the pathology you'll be treating. For example, like in a cadaver lab, which is sort of the gold standard right now, if we wanted to practice, you know, doing a scoliosis or deformity procedure, that cadaver is not going to have scoliosis, right? So even the gold standard that we have, you can't really practice certain techniques. You can get objective assessment. And then, you know, the big issue, once again, is like train as a team. We actually, at UCLA, they did a study where they looked at, you know, how many people are actually in the operating room at any given time and what's the variability. And what they found for a single spine surgeon, on average, there were eight people in the room at any given time. And over a month, 25 different surgical techs and 51 different anesthesiologists. And so that's another big issue that we have. Like, it's, you know, you're working with somebody like an entirely different team, like every single day. And that team might have no idea what surgery you're doing or anything about it. You know, you could be working with the B or the C team who are like super specialized and they're great at whatever they do, but they're not familiar with your field. You know, if you're working at night or on the weekend, which is all too common now. So I basically came up with this idea in between residency and fellowship, finish fellowship at Boston Children's, come out to Stanford to do their biodesign innovation fellowship, which is an amazing program. And then, you know, I basically, I had met some guy on the internet uh, in an Oculus forum. Oh, sounding sketchy right now. Yeah, no, th this is th this is where things take like a hard left and, and get really interesting. So yeah, I meet this guy, he's like looking for work in serious VR. And I'm like, well, I have this like prototype I can show you. So I showed him like what I built and, and he told me that I was the least crazy person that reached out to him. So, you know, we agreed to work together. I had some money I had set aside from my bar mitzvah. So I used that to pay him. Thank you, grandma and grandpa. And, you know, we built this prototype that we submitted to a conference, the graphics technology conference, GTC, and uh, we won an award. So that was really exciting. And all of a sudden, like investors started reaching out. And, you know, v this is when virtual reality was like very exciting and hot, like VR is still exciting, but it's, you know, still kind of in the trough of disillusionment. So like people are just like, here, here, take my money. And I'm like, what's going on? Like I had to like starting like buying books on Amazon. I'm like, what? I don't even know what words they're telling me. And so, you know, I had this opportunity where I'm like, I could go full time with this stranger I met on the internet who, you know, lives somewhere I'd only met one time. And, you know, I jumped out of his moving car at one point to pick up a cable we needed for an investor meeting. Sounds so much like Silicon Valley. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know this story. It's called Silicon Valley. It's a show. Episode what, 111. That show is like way too close to home. So, you know, like I'm... I'm on the, the path, right? We're all on that path where, you know, you, you do this, ABC, you're a doctor forever and everyone's super happy. Or I could take this huge risk on something I was really passionate about. And so I was kind of at this crossroads where I could, I could stay at Stanford and do the program or I would have to drop out of Stanford and go full-time with, with OSO, which would have some, you know, some potential implication for my career as a surgeon. I might never operate again. I didn't know. And so, you know, I called like my parents and my friends to see, you know, what I should do. And they were all like, do not drop out of Stanford, 100%. It's a terrible life decision. 
But I thought back on a fellowship interview I had had at Sick Kids, and you know, I, I sat down. It was, it was with like the, the chair, the program director. I can't remember. You know, he, he he like opened my packet and closed it like after like ten seconds, and he goes, "Clearly, you're a bit different than our normal applicant." So I'm not even going to ask you any questions. I'm just going to give you some advice. And, you know, this is like, you know, breakfast with my gastroenterologist part two, I guess. And so he's like, don't worry about what you think success is. You know, don't don't try and find it. Just do what you're passionate about and success will find you. Trust me. And I was like, that's the weirdest interview I've ever had second to being asked to play operation. And so in this moment, I really I thought of that. You know, I'm like, well, this is what I'm passionate about. And I thought of another thing in, in college, I was involved in like the Greek leadership sy- system. And, you know, we did this sort of like, you know, kind of team building activity called the tap of leadership. And so everybody's on the ground, you have your eyes closed and you can't stand up until someone taps you on the shoulder. And then when someone taps you, you can tap other people. And at the end of the exercise, they ask, you know, will the person who got tapped first raise your hand? So some guy raises his hand and they ask everybody in the room who thinks that like instructor one tapped this guy and like half raises their hand and then they say, who thinks it was instructor number two? It's like the other half. And then they're like, well, the person who tapped themselves, or they asked that, that person said, who tapped you? And the guy said, I did. And to me, that really blew my mind because I was all ready to sit there for hours and it didn't even cross my mind that I could just tap myself on the head and stand up and start tapping other people. And this is like this transformational realization I had in, in a whole life where all you're doing is jumping through hoops and getting degrees and trying to seek the approval of others, this is a path where the only person who can give you permission to do this is yourself. There's not some special degree or special thing that's suddenly going to give you the ability to do this. And so it was those two experiences combined where I, I walked into the, <laughs> the director's office at Stanford and I said, I'm, I'm dropping out. And like, I mean, jaw fell to the floor. It was, you know, not a pleasant conversation. I think I, I hit like an ambulance on my way out. I was not doing well either. And, you know, two days later, I'm in a Starbucks by myself with some guy I met on the internet. And I was like, here we go. And, you know, today we're, you know, 43 people. Like I said, we're using 20 countries. We train thousands of surgeons a month. And, you know, and the technology works. You know, we've done two clinical validation studies uh, that show anywhere from 230 to 300% boost in surgical performance. And this one at UCLA, you know, they compared individuals who trained with OSO to individuals trained traditionally and found that the performance scores of the OSO VR trained group improved by 230 points. So most people at this point are like, you made a great decision, good job. But I would say that that was not a path I'd recommend to most people. I think there's probably a way to, my, my, hope and my goal and my excitement about talking to you guys and being on this podcast is there is a way to make innovation more of a part of mainstream medicine, where it's not this thing that you have to blow up your whole life and take a huge risk to do. And that it's it's something that you can train for longitudinally, because a lot like surgery, it's a lifelong discipline, and that you have the opportunity to participate in a way that doesn't require you to completely exit the world of medicine so that you can, that we both can benefit from each other. And so, you know, that's what I want to talk to you guys about. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you're able to talk because I completely believe in that. I've kind of taken a year for myself where I'm working part time. So I'm working on some other projects, which are a little bit too much in their infancy to talk about completely yet. But when I, you know, I've tried the Oculus. So I'm a big fan of virtual reality. I, I wasn't doing anything educational at all. I was I was playing a game. I think it was Beat Saber or something akin to that. But, but it was like, it, but it was it was super fun. But the, just the technology blew me away. So when I saw that, you know, your company was doing that with surgical education, I was like, Oh, my gosh, I wish we had this when we were training. It's such an innovative way to augment our education, right? And especially like you said, there are times where you're not necessarily going to be on a rotation and see the kind of case you need to see or get enough cases in. So uh, I'm really glad you took the risk and, uh, you know, met that guy on the internet. And <laughs> His just... name is Matt. Hi, Matt. <laughs> I have a lot of comments um, in general, but I think it's cool that you can standardize some type of surgical training because it's so variable. I had two of my own co-residents from 
Ohio State training that were actually held back, but they were done so in a really subjective way that they didn't understand. They were held back a year because they didn't feel, or the the authorities in large, they decided that they were not fit yet to to graduate and operate on people by themselves. And to have like an objective way to move through a surgical residency that's standardized where I'm not getting more surgical exposure because my chief resident has done a hundred of these and now he feels comfortable that I can operate and, and, and oversee me where if I had had a different person, maybe I wouldn't have gotten that hands-on experience. And so I feel very fortunate to have gotten that experience, but in the same sense, in the same residency program, I have had my co-residents who did not get the similar experience and they were kind of not punished, I would say, but they were held back until they felt it was appropriate for them to continue on. And I guess it's interesting, the, the training as a team type of mentality with your system is that you're in there and can you get objective feedback right then and there? So it's not like you have to you make a critical error? It's like, wah, wah, life's over, start again. Like, do you have like certain lives? Is it like a video game in that sense? Or like, do you get that, hey, like, don't cut there. You know, here's, you know, someone taking you through that virtual experience to, to show you in in the same way that it's done in, in surgery, right? Like, okay, put your retractor here. This is what you don't want to get into. This is the next step. Here's the trick. And you have that immediate feedback and interaction, yeah, I mean, I there's a lot to unpack there. I think you you had a lot of great points. Digging into assessment first, we handle this a few different ways. One is that for certain critical steps, there are, you know, there's a range of what's acceptable clinically. And so, you know, you always want people to improve, but if it's okay, it's okay, right? You know, if like, you know, your hip's not perfectly center center, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. You can do better next time, but let's move on. So we'll give people that feedback that it's like, it wasn't perfect, but here's how you can improve next time. And then certain things are not okay. So, you know, if you put a screw in the joint or in somewhere where it really shouldn't be, you probably shouldn't be allowed to proceed because you want to make sure that someone understands where that's supposed to go. And so, you know, usually we'll, you know, you'll we'll have like a practice mode where you can make whatever mistakes you want, go back and forth, retry as many times, and then assessment mode where it's like kind of more, if you do run into one of those failure states and you do kind of have to go back and kind of just you know, make sure that you have an acceptable performance. And then, you know, there's also this a delayed feedback has been shown in some studies to be more effective. So we give certain feedback within VR and then certain feedback afterwards so you can review your performance. And when we think about assessment, you know, what does that even mean? There's so many different surgical scoring systems. So we kind of had to like create our own, to be honest. And so we really think about like three key things. The first is knowledge of steps. You know, at the end of the day, like surgery is like cooking or construction or baking. It's like if you follow the steps, most times it's going to turn out okay. And then you need to know how to troubleshoot when things don't go as planned or if you make some sort of mistake. And so the foundational thing is just knowing the steps and having them, you know, known by heart. And it's like, this is clearly, I, I think something that is probably one of the most undervalued aspects of surgical training that we don't emphasize enough that if you have the steps of a procedure fully memorized, you're going to be much more successful. Like, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I've worked with surgeons who print out the steps and like tape it up in the operating room, right? And that probably means that they don't know it super well, right? So, you know, you should you should know these steps super well for a procedure. And there's certain technologies that will also remind you like when you're in when you're in the procedure. So like even some musicians, if they have a piece fully memorized, they might still have the music in front of them just in case, you know. The second part is doing those steps well. So certain steps are really conducive to training in VR. And so we want to focus in on those. And make sure that, you know, people understand how to do them well. If we can give feedback on how to do certain things better, we want to do that. We don't want to get too caught up in all of the, the nitty gritty because certain things don't translate super well from VR. So uh, you have to really be careful in like what steps you want those to be where you really want to emphasize them in terms of making sure that people are accurate. And then the final component is really efficiency is that if someone is able to move very smoothly through a procedure, there's a lot of literature in, in the simulation research that shows that they're more likely to be successful in real life, that there's evidence of skill transfer. So those are some of the areas that we really focus our assessment around. And, you know, typically we'll walk someone through what we call the happy path of a procedure. So it's like, hey, like, let's just work on the foundation first. Everything goes great. Nothing goes wrong. Now, I know none of us have been in a surgery probably where things go completely as planned, including my playlist always seems to be on like the wrong Spotify or Pandora channel, which is, I think, the most critical element. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, it's like, who put Madonna on? I know. Or yeah, a song comes on where you're sort of like, oh no, I don't yeah. want people to know. No, I mean, that's awesome. It's, it's kind of interesting, but like, or a playlist can be controversial. So you do have to be careful there. But I do enjoy the occasional punny song like No Scrubs or Smooth Operator. So, you know, so you get the happy path down and then it's like, all right, now you have the basics. Now you want to focus on what I call like uh, skills, concepts, and troubleshooting. So, you know, you, you want to understand how to balance a knee, right? Like this tighten extension, tighten flexion, or, you know, what to do if you take off too much tibia or like what to do for, you know, you have too much ligamentous laxity. So it, just as an example. So, you know, start working through like, okay, here's how to get out of a variety of situations. Then people were like, well, how do you introduce complications? Are they random? And, you know, that's kind of like a fun thing, but, you know, sometimes you want to be pretty intentional about what you're doing. So, you know, we have the option to you practice complications on purpose, be like, I want to do like a complication scenario where I want to understand that better. We're, we're working on artificial intelligence to basically introduce complications at, at random. And then also a facilitator could also introduce them as well as so like, you know, you could be in with me showing me how to do a bunionectomy. And, you know, I, I don't know what happens, the big toe fall off. I don't know a lot about it. <laughs> it's been a while. I just pin elbows now. So, you know, those are those are some of the things we think about. Some other things that you brought up, though, that, that got my mind spinning. You know, there are two kind of, I would say, this pretty controversial area where we're kind of playing in. So you have to be careful. But issues on the front end and the back end of your surgical career. So on the front end, when you're a medical student, I, I think one thing that we can do I'm really excited about is the idea of career exploration. Like one of the biggest challenges in medical school is deciding what fields you want to go into, right? And especially in orthopedics, you sometimes get none or only a week. So it's not really enough to make a, you know, a huge life decision on. And I feel like if we can expose people to actual orthopedic procedures sooner, maybe they'll get more excited about it and also can optimize their applications for getting an orthopedic since it's so competitive and you have to start doing research really early. So it's like by the time you're doing your orthopedics rotation, it's kind of too late to make that decision. So it's it's kind of difficult situation. So I'm really excited about providing this for career exploration and even before med school, like for college and high school kids. And we actually have an event with the Department of Education every year where, you know, high school, middle, middle school students try OSO and every single one's like, I want to be a surgeon. And I think to me, it's like really important that I, like, so my mom, she just had me and my brother. So I always felt like I need to like represent her and women because she was like a really major leader for women's rights. And in orthopedics in particular, it's like, in 2014, something like 4% of orthopedic attendings were women. And I think there was some research out of Penn that showed that if you had more women exposed to orthopedics earlier, they're more likely to apply and subsequently get in. So I'm, I'm hoping that this may move the needle a little bit on what is a really major issue in our field. I mean, that is just like ridiculously lopsided. And yeah, I'd like to add a little bit to that too. And, you know, during my residency, I was the only female and they hadn't had any female before me actually graduate. Now, you know, there's like a few that had dropped out. And what was interesting was that, and I'm petite, I'm pretty small. I w I'm not the classic representation of what you consider an orthopedic surgeon, right? Hand surgeon. <laughs> I also did a trauma fellowship, so I, I, I'm legit. She's a badass. We I, all know this. Okay. But, but <laughs> what was interesting was that uh, we had medical students, like females that would come through, and they were like, oh, I didn't know I could do this. I was always told that this place, like orthopedics, isn't for women, that women can't become orthopedic surgeons. We're too small. I'm 5'2". I weigh 100 pounds. You might have to be smarter and, you know, you're using more brain than brawn, but you can certainly do it. So I, I think introducing people to this earlier and saying, yeah, this is what this field involves. And going and just going through the process, going through the procedure gives you a better idea of whether it's something that is a good fit for you. Because and the other thing that I thought about when you were talking about making the decision on which field you're going to go into. There were times where I feel people were making decisions based on how good their rotation was or who they worked with versus the actual specialty itself. It's, oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's so true. It's just like, yeah, who you get along with, really. Who you get along with and stuff. And so, you know, I, I think exposing people early on to the realities of what the profession is, is crucial so that you can, you know, help you pick, uh, pick the right profession, especially when you're committing as much time as you're committing all the hours you're putting into your residency and your fellowship. And then later on in your life. What was the program exactly in Sanford that you dropped out of? <laughs> 
first of all, I highly recommend it for anybody that's interested in medical innovation, whether you're a physician or an engineer. It's, it's called biodesign. It's actually really unique. It kind of revolutionized the way we think about healthcare innovation, where the one part of the really unique approach was, you know, taking engineers and physicians and putting them on teams together to solve problems. And the other approach was uh, what's called need-based innovation. And so this is very similar to, you know, what my mentor Henry told me way back when, where it's let's not create technology and then try and find interesting applications. Let's find a big problem in healthcare and then ideate around that. And they have a whole process by which you can kind of systematize innovation in a way to sort of provide a bit of method to the madness. So there's a lot of materials. You can get the textbook online. There's a whole video curriculum. Um, there are executive programs for for clinicians who don't have a huge amount of time or, or you know, if you're a resident or a fellow, uh, you can apply to be in it, but I'm a huge proponent. And then UCLA recently started its own biodesign program as well. And there's one at TMC now. So they're popping up all over the place. And it's really, it's an amazing phenomenon. Is it like a one-year program? Yeah. So the the classic fellow fellowship is 10 months, but, you know, they have like, I think like a one to two week executive program as well and program for undergrads even. It's, it's really pretty cool. Yeah. It seems like there's so there's a lot of, I guess, availability and exposure to PhD, like MD, PhD, MD, JD, MD, like the public health. Would this be something that would could fit into a medical curriculum at that level? Or do you think that you have to get down to finishing your residency or getting into kind of more of a knowledge system uh, or base knowledge of medicine before you're able to really get thrown into a program like that? Oh, I, I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, this is, once again, the problem that we're trying to solve in that, like, this is like fitting a circle into a square hole, you know? It's, you're sort of damned if you do either way. Like, if you do it during residency, like, you can't really take a year off super easily. And if you have a research year, that's probably, like, the best way to do it. But then you're in this awkward position if you end up, like, starting, like, an amazing company. What do you do then? Like, do you go with the company? <laughs> Or do you finish your training? <laughs> I mean, I still practice, you know, and that's I'm super grateful with how all the timing worked out. But it's like this is this is one of the big things that a lot of people reach out to me and they're like in training, about to enter training at the end of their training. They're like have some really exciting opportunity and they're like, what do I do? And I really I don't I don't know. You know, it's a case by case thing. Uh, but I think ideally, if you can finish your training and do this sort of thing and, and like do both to some extent, I think that is an ideal situation. It's really nice to be able to live in both worlds, but it's really hard to to execute on that. Mm -hmm. I had a question about if this takes off and you you have like your ideal situation, how do you see this being implemented on a grander scale? I mean, is this part of an everyday residency, not everyday, but into every resident type training program? Is there like an assessment test you have to pass before, before you graduate? I mean, how do you see that fitting into the surgical education that exists now? I guess also just just to add to that, so you can answer the same question. But uh, the accreditation, like how how do you achieve accreditation with this? And I think that that can piggyback onto what your question was. Well, you know, in terms of the ultimate vision, you know, at the beginning of our talk together, I talked about how I was attracted to the mission driven nature of working with children, and so I, I really wanted to bring that feeling to everyone at Oso. And so we have our mission, which is to improve patient outcomes with better education and assessment, increase the adoption of higher value medical technologies to increase the consistency and quality of our procedures in healthcare, and then democratize access to surgical education all around the world. So, you know, whether you're in New York or Los Angeles or Ethiopia or Tanzania, you should have access to the same quality and training opportunities across the board. And so that's something that we really believe in. And to accomplish that mission for us, you know, we really want to get VR training and assessment to the 30 million healthcare professionals around the world that practice technical skills with patients. And that's anything from putting in an IV to doing complex robotic surgery. Now, you know, in terms of this specific area we're focusing on, let's say training orthopedic residents, you know, there are a couple of use cases where, you know, clearly there is utility for, you know, if you're starting a rotation, there are really two things that you should be thinking about. One is your learning curve with specific procedures. And the other one is something I call the trust curve. And so this is the idea that, you know, if you're an attending and you have a resident or fellow coming in, you don't know them. You don't know how safe they are, what they know, what they don't know. And you spend actually a good number of cases getting a sense of that before you'll feel comfortable enough allowing them to get some reps in. 
And so this can cause a pretty significant delay that actually increases based on the size of your program. So the less you're with a single person, the less comfortable they'll be with you. And so if you can, one, get yourself further along the learning curve, and then two, give objective evidence that you're trustworthy and move along the trust curve as well, it's really going to improve your experience with patients, right? So you're going to be able to do more sooner in terms of autonomy in the OR. So, you know, if you're, you know, R2 starting on joints, then, you know, you want to be able to do end-to-end, total knee, uni, anterior, posterior hip, for example, and just be able to have that down pat, demonstrate that, and then come into the operating room. Now, a lot of the things we do in residency is kind of like one-off. So like you'll take call or be doing something here or there, and suddenly like, you know, you're on a joint uh, rotation and, and now you're doing like, you know, complex spine trauma or something like that. And you haven't done that in a few years since you just get pulled all sorts of directions. So the ability to refresh yourself or get up to speed on something you may not have seen in a while or ever is really valuable. So instead of carrying netters around, you can carry around just this VR headset, which is about the same size, same weight, and just jump into the procedure. And hey, like, you know, you got an open femur going, your chief wants something done very particularly, but he's too lazy to come in. He can jump into VR with you, walk you through the whole case, the setup, and then, you know, the chief and the attending can come into the room and everything's really ready to go exactly how they wanted it. And there's not all the backtracking that often takes place in sort of the messy nature of, you know, emergency surgery. Another issue that we have in our field is, you know, in any field of, of where you're doing procedures that involve emergent situations is low frequency, high urgency situations. And so, you know, in my training, I had one experience where, you know, as APC pelvis comes in, you know, gen surge needs to do an X lap and we need to do an X fix. It's going to save this patient's life, right? One of the few situations like it's like where we have the opportunity or I guess the risk of, you know, someone's really life in our hands. <laughs> and so the attending that I was with really wasn't very comfortable doing it. I think it had been like 10 years since he had done it. And, you know, one of my fellow trainees had just done a bunch randomly, you know, on like previous rotation. So she did it, save this patient's life, you know, and I was just like, holy crap, like that should never happen. Yeah. Or you have the intern reading the technique guide to the attending <laughs> physician, scrub out quick. You have to read to me exactly what's going on. I'll put it on YouTube. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, for real, like uh, we've all, we've all been there, you know, and these, these things, we all trained at stellar institutions and it's just the reality of the challenges that we face when you, you have no idea what's coming through the door. And many people aren't really aware of the challenges that we deal with in terms of the sheer variability of what we deal with. One of the ways I try and illustrate this to people is I was, I was at lunch with, you know, my former chief had just become an attending. So he's like a new attending. We're at lunch. He gets a phone call. He's gone for 20 minutes, comes back and just like, you know, looks different. I'm like, what's going on? (laughs) And he's like, what do you know about gorilla anatomy? (laughs) I was like, okay, now you really have to tell me. He's like, that was the zoo. They said their gorilla needs surgery. His brother pushed him off the cliff because he was jealous because he was flirting with his girlfriend. And, you know, they said, we have to drive down there right now and operate. I'm like, well, what surgery do we need to do? He's like, I don't know. I said, what, what do you mean they, they don't know? It's like they can't get an x-ray without tranking it. And they have to, they can only trank it once. So it's like you have to get the x-ray and immediately do surgery. So we just need to be like standing by. Yeah, <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm staying silent, but I'm anxious. Go ahead. Continue your story. <laughs> this, this is a ridiculous story. <laughs> this is like trial, but trial by fire. This is uh, pretty fascinating. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Wait, am I the only one who's had this experience? <laughs> Not on a good, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, you know, well, are we going to go? And, and he's like, Hell yes. So we're like driving to the zoo and like Googling, like, you know, do gorillas have bones? Like, I mean, just like really the basics. And, you know, there we were in the room. There's like 50 people in there. It's like 500 pound gorilla with like a fire hose down its throat. And, you know, it had subtrochanteric femur fracture. Like we didn't have a nail that could fit it or some complication there. So we had to put a plate on, which is suboptimal. And, you know, apparently like large animals wake up instantaneously from anesthesia and become very violent. So, you know, anytime it would move a finger, the anesthesiologist would be like, everybody get out, you're going to die. And like, you just like <laughs> run for the door. So there were like two times where we had to evacuate. And then, you know, finally it was just like, close up. We like rush the gorilla down the hall and everyone's like, move, move, move. And you like throw it into like its little room, close the door. And I mean, it was like the biggest adrenaline rush of our lives. Like we're all like high-fiving and crying. And it was really interesting to me. I'm like, guys, we operate on human beings every day. I've never seen you this excited, you know, just because it was so different. 
But I mean, that happened. And he's he's doing great, uh, is my understanding the last time I checked. <laughs> Didn't snap his plate immediately. <laughs> I know, right? We had to switch out one screw. It just backed out. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was like, you're always like, oh, yeah, just just be a, a Jabari. Can you be toe touch weight bearing on the left side? <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. So, yeah, that was a fascinating experience. But I mean, I obviously an extreme example, but I mean, we deal with stuff like that every week, right? It's just, it's something that you've never seen before. It's so extreme, so crazy. And, you know, you're just kind of thrown into it, you know, and maybe you're, you're Googling something or you have like some textbook that was useful like 30 years ago, but there's, there's not a lot you can go on oftentimes. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. And that happens to all of us. We're, we'll all come across something, especially I talked to so many people who were in their first year of practice, really within the first three to four months, you'll get a case that you I never saw this before. <laughs> it happens all the time. Or I haven't done this in four years. Let yeah. me just go and refresh through a book. It happens to us all the time. Watch a view medi and, and yeah. try to you know, when these are people and it's it's really nice to have some type of validated way to practice yeah. without having to get a cadaver lab or do something. Yeah, because I mean, we have such a responsibility, right? So I did want to pivot a little bit. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the actual technology, because one of the things that's important also in surgery is some of that tactile feedback that, you know, so that you don't always have to rely on it, but a lot of times, you know, it's nice for us to have that tactile feedback. Are you working with any companies, any terms of like suits or gloves that give you some haptic feedback while you're doing a virtual case or? Well, this is definitely the most common question we get. So, you know, what we're using is right now we're using the Oculus Quest and then what are called the Oculus Touch Controllers. In these controllers are orthogonal kind of MEMS actuators um, that are, you know, provide what are called cutaneous haptics. So haptics feedback has a few different categories. And so, you know, your phone, like vibration, light touch, these are termed cutaneous haptics. And then there's another category of what people commonly refer to as force feedback. That's called kinesthetic haptics. And that comes in two varieties. One is grounded kinesthetic haptics and then ungrounded. So, you know, if you're describing like a glove with an exoskeleton on it that stops your hands when you wrap around an object, that would be an ungrounded kinesthetic haptic feedback. Or, you know, you you may have seen this if you look at, sometimes you'll see like a stylus that's like on a desk and you hold this little pen and it kind of pushes back against you. That would be an example of grounded kinesthetic feedback. And so in the early days, I definitely was thinking, I'm like, oh, haptics is, is so important for what we do. I want to have the very best haptics out there. So I kind of wanted to experience what the best haptics felt like. So I actually got a chance to demonstrate the Da Vinci surgical robot from Intuitive Surgical. And so I was like doing you know some suturing and moving some rings around with this robot, which is really cool. It's not something we get to use often in ortho. So I highly recommend you try it out. And you know, I turned to the rep and I was like, hey, the haptics on this feel incredible. Like, how did you guys do that? And he looked at me and goes, oh, there's no haptic feedback at all. I'm surprised you didn't know that. And so, you know, I was a little embarrassed, but also like kind of astounded. I was like, well, I can feel this. Like, and so I had this realization, maybe I didn't really understand haptics as much as I thought I did. And so, you know, the sense of when you're using the Da Vinci is, you know, there are different terms for it. I call it like phantom haptics, but I've also seen sense substitution or digital synesthesia. And the idea is that much like an optical illusion, your brain will actually fill in the gaps from something called tactile memory. So if you know what it should feel like, usually it will feel that way to you for the most part. So I thought that was really interesting. That is so cool. Actually, it's true. I did have that experience with like that Beat Saber game. But anyway. Huh. <laughs> there you are. I mean, you must be using lightsabers to slice musical blocks all the time. Then. It was, it was, um, yeah, exactly. And so the other thing is, you know, surgical simulation isn't like a brand new field. Like, you know, the idea of not training on patients has been around forever. What's new is, you know, being able to use a commoditized gaming technology that's so effective and amazing. So I was like, well, surgical simulators of the past decade or so have utilized grounded kinesthetic feedback for some time, and it's pretty high quality. So I'm like, well, how much does it help? Because it's, it's very expensive and it can break. And so you have to constantly like repair and maintain it. So when you look at meta-analyses of the vast majority of research, best case, it provides a little bit of skill transfer, but nothing, not clinically significant. The vast majority of studies show no benefit to including ke grounded kinesthetic haptic feedback to simulators. And then a small minority of studies actually show a negative training effect. 
And those authors attribute it to the haptics actually training them incorrectly. So it's almost as if you're training an NBA player on like a carnival basketball hoop, for example, was sort of the theory of why that turned out that way. And another thing is, do people even like this form of haptic feedback? And so there was a study where they took surgeons, they had two simulators, one had grounded kinesthetic haptics and one had uh, no haptics at all. And they said, you know, which of you think that haptics is the most important factor for a simulator to be successful. And it was 17 out of 20 surgeons said that haptic feedback was the most important feature to them. Then they had them try both simulators and they were blinded, so they didn't know which was which. And then they asked the surgeons afterwards which simulator felt more realistic. And 18 out of 20 said the one with zero haptics. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then one of the reasons that they attribute this is a phenomenon called the uncanny valley. Have you guys heard of this before? Yeah. So yeah, the classic example is it's typically from like animation or animatronics where if something is really realistic, but not all the way there, it actually really freaks the human brain out. So if you've ever seen the movie, The Polar Express or Final Fantasy Spirits Within, those are like classic examples of Uncanny Valley where the whole movie, you're just like, I feel very uncomfortable. I don't know why. And it's, it's this phenomenon of Uncanny Valley. So what's really interesting is that if you show these sort of like higher kind of like hyper haptic simulators, I don't really know what to call them, these kinesthetic haptic simulators to non-surgeons, they'll often say that it feels great because they don't know what it's supposed to feel like, right? They, they, they're not used to drilling into bone or cutting skin and things like that. So to them, they don't know what realistic is. But then when you show it to surgeons, it feels weird and very distracting. And so the reason why you see so many of these is that people who are not surgeons like get excited about it and show it to investors who aren't surgeons and they get excited and then they finally show it to surgeons. They're like, this isn't super great. And so that's why like for so many years, these things have been kind of floating around. So the advantages of, you know, being able to use these controllers, which still have haptic feedback, they, even with cutaneous haptics and, you know, we can do really cool things. Like when you're drilling through bone, you can tell if it's cortical or trabecular bone. So you can actually like feel the intramedullary space. One of the interesting things, how I knew we were on the right track is in the early days, we didn't have any haptics at all. Like there were no cutaneous haptics. And so, you know, people would be hammering this tibial nail in and they take it off and they turn to me and they go, hey, I don't know how you got the haptics to feel so good, but that was awesome. And I was just like, that's so crazy. Like there were none, you know? So I think there's a lot of research that needs to be done in this area. But I think at the end of the day, what we should be focused on is not what the training is like, but what the results are. And so I think that's the key thing is how much skill transfer are you getting from a specific simulation? You know, for surgeons, if you have to wear like a chicken suit or something, it's going to make you a better surgeon. I'll wear it, right? And so that's why I try and kind of like, there's a lot of thoughts and there's still a lot of open questions around the utility of specific kinds of haptic feedback. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the overall skill transfer. And that's what we found with the way that we do surgical simulation with our platform is it leads to, in this UCLA study, a 230% boost in surgical performance. And part of that is that you're practicing in virtual reality, you're getting the reps, but also you have some assessment. So like if you're reading a technique guide, you're watching a video, you're getting a lecture, at no point is someone checking that you're ready. You just proceed to the OR when you feel ready. And what you feel and what reality is often are very different things. And so that's the key part of OSO that really differentiates from how we do training currently is that you can get objective data that you are ready to perform certain parts of procedures. Okay. So which institutions are currently using your technology? We work with around 20 residency programs in the U.S. and the U.K. You know, some examples are like UCLA, Hospital for Special Surgery, or HSS to us. So, you know, a variety of leading academic medical centers are using OsoVR. And then also a number of medical device companies use OsoVR as well. So either instead of or in addition to courses, they'll train people with VR headsets, especially in you know, the intra-COVID and post-COVID era. We're not going to be able to go to conferences anymore, and we're not going to be able to go to courses. I don't know about you guys. I don't know when really I'll ever feel comfortable going to like, I'm like kind of sad about it. Academy is like my favorite event of the year, but just like hard to imagine going back to that anytime soon. So, but those are really important events for us, not only socially, and politically, but technically for training and getting exposure to new technologies and new techniques. So, you know, being able to continue to improve our skills. And this is like, I think kind of, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, but I feel like the main way that we can continue to improve post-fellowship is through industry, right? It's, it's industry 
that gives us more opportunities to train, some sort of oversight and connection with KOLs and exposure to new technologies and techniques. Now, some people are very lucky and they work with an, at an institution where there's good mentorship and, you know, like a non-competitive atmosphere where people feel comfortable having other more senior attendings supervising and helping out. But like, I feel like that's probably more of the exception and that, you know, it's once you're out, it's, it feels like you're alone. And so this industry provided training to me seems like a really critical resource that I hope we can maintain so that we can continue to have postgraduate training opportunities. I think we are continuously learning and you need an avenue to do that. And I think the industry has the funds available to help us. And I feel there's easier access than trying to go back to an institution that you trained at, right? When, again, we're lifelong learners. And as, as orthopedic surgery in general, medicine in general continues to innovate, you have to keep up. Or you're obsolete, right? Even in our field. So I think that I think that in, in having close relationships with industry is important. As long as I guess you know we always have to not cross any lines, right? <laughs> so, but I think that's just a realistic avenue for us to uh, get our resources to continue learning. I think it's it's an incredible technology, and and I think you're very much accurate in saying that it's really the exception to have like wonderful mentorship and feel like you're in this collegial space, like residency where you're going over cases all the time and, well, what would you do here? What would you do there? And to have a feedback system where you're not getting your assessment by some uh, patient's outcome, because, you know, especially as young surgeons, whether, you know, you're well-trained or, or, or come from Harvard or, and you come into a situation where you're doing a new case, you don't want your assessment to be how they're doing postoperatively in three months. You know, you, to get that feedback and practice ahead of time so that you give the patients the best outcome, which I think is, you know, what you've been saying all along is to get that, that outcome-driven benefit with this technology. And, and the COVID-19 uh, issues is a huge thing I mean, we have, I've had two courses cancel already. You're not going to Academy. This is Cadaver Labs. You're doing very small scale stuff where you don't always have funding to do something substantial like a Cadaver Lab per se, but you can virtually work with people all over the country and world to get the training or exposure that you need to feel like you're comfortable and you're taking care of patients well. And uh, I think that's fantastic. That's the silver lining of COVID if we're going to find anything. I think there's going to be a lot more technological innovations because of this, right? And we're, we need to be able to adapt to our current situations as it is. So certainly technologies like telemedicine is definitely having, is having its sort of heyday right now. And it's going to, I think, continue to, I think there's going to be more innovations in that, being able to deliver it in a, in a better fashion and, you know, without too many technical glitches, I think, like we're seeing now. I, I think that there's going to be a lot of ideas that come out of this time period and hopefully, you know, more disruptive and interesting ways that we can practice medicine in a way that kind of keeps up with what's coming down in the future. I have a random question. Is this something like you can score and get like compete against your friends and you're like, okay, I score 2,040 uh, my total knee replacement, what'd you get? Like, I did it in 20 minutes, you did it in 15 or, minutes. Or if you don't like pass, like levels of failure. I got the top score yeah. you know, in so, whatever procedure. Yeah, you have to provide a way for people to be competitive without making people feel bad or embarrassing them. And so it's like, it has to be all like couched very positively. So, you know, for us, like all of our different rating scales are like some positive descriptor, like they range from basic to extra. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, if you look at traditional surgical rating scales, it's kind of like super archaic, like it's unacceptable or like, oh, yeah. uns, you know, they're yeah. like Terrible. really negative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah like exactly. Embarrassing to your mother, level four. <laughs> so it's trying to bring some of that to the modern age. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Do you have any last words or anything that you want to impart to the audience? Well, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, you guys were talking a little bit about the silver lining. I think a lot of digital technologies are kind of having their, you know, light of day and, and have, you know, we're so lucky a lot of these technologies existed when all of this started happening. But, you know, at the same time, we can be better positioned to integrate these technologies better and, and innovate more constructively. And so I think a couple of things that, you know, I would like to see in terms of our contribution 
for Oso. I think there are a couple of areas. One is streamlining medical and postgraduate education, especially for surgery. Like if young people are looking at a career in surgery or like a career in technology, it's making less and less sense to get into the surgical world, which makes me super sad. But, you know, who wants to spend 14, 17 years until you're an adult? And so, you know, I think, you know, really advocating for med schools to follow in the footsteps of NYU and at least being three years, maybe even the opportunity for a two-year or more integrated medical degree to undergrad. And I think through competency-based training, I think we could potentially shave a year off of residency, which has been shown in Canada. They've done some experimentation with this, which it can speed up training if you include more simulation and more assessment to let people out when they're ready and not just when they've been there for a certain period of time. So you're going to piss off all those old guys who work 200 hours a week. Yeah. Man, they're already pissed off about the, the work hour restrictions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was. It's like, you guys are weak. You only work 80 hours a week. What's wrong with you? If I did it, you can do oh, it. Oh, yeah. No, believe me, I got a lot of that. <laughs> I, I remember like those side eyes that you'd sometimes get if it's like sort of time to go home. You have to log your hours, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's my favorite yeah, thing. Exactly. It's like, exactly. do you need anything? else exactly as, as a medical student it's like there's like translation please let me leave yeah, exactly. <laughs> i haven't seen my family in weeks uh, um, okay oh yeah we all have shared trauma it's yes great. Um, <laughs> well <laughs> thank you so much justin this has been fantastic it was so enjoyable talking to you about this i think you guys are doing an incredible thing like keep up the good work and, and getting the word out there but i think you guys will be very inspiring to a lot of physician innovators and healthcare innovators and We'll get to see more solutions like this out there. Okay. Well, awesome. Okay. Thank you. Well, thanks, All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a great week. Thanks. This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.